I'm a believer that in 2000, in 22, likely every project we build, at least in the West and the Southwest, will have storage as part of it. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. The podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar consulting and development company. Our website's reneuenergy.com. I'm excited to interview George Hirschman. He's an industry veteran who has led Swinnerton Renewable Energy, SRE, for 13 years. Swinnerton is the largest engineering procurement construction firm in the U.S., They built solar projects all over the U.S., and he currently serves as the board chairman at the Solar Energy Industry Association, SIA. He's the president of Swinnerton Renewable Energy and also Solvi. Solvi is the largest operations and maintenance O&M solar provider in the U.S., SRE, or Swinnerton Renewable Energy, has delivered over 4 gigawatts of solar energy via turnkey engineering procurement construction EPC services, while their technical service team manages over 4.5 gigawatts of PV plants across the country. And that number is a lot higher. 2020 was a record year for them, and that's amazing during COVID. And George brings up a lot of great insights and topics. Some of them are innovations that he's seeing and efficiencies in solar and also what they're seeing in storage as well. They've been building solar plus storage and standalone storage. He also talks about the Biden infrastructure plan, which he's been talking to a lot of members of Congress about. And also another interesting point that he made was how in the U.S. we're going to have a significant increase in the demand for electricity, especially when you talk about electrification of the car fleet and how you will see a lot more solar because of that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you for listening listening. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Summit Ridge Energy is the leading owner and operator of community solar projects in the United States. Thank you again to Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode. You'll learn more about them during this podcast. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to interview George Hirschman. He's the president at Swinnerton Renewable Energy and Solve. George, welcome to the podcast. Benoit, thank you for having me. It's a great way to spend an afternoon. I really appreciate your time. I think our listeners are going to learn a lot. And it's just kind of amazing from our pre-interview to hear about Swinnerton and about some of the interesting things as well that you're working with SIA with uh, President Biden's infrastructure plan. I think a great way to start off the interviews, can you talk about Swinnerton Renewable Energy? Sure. So Swinnerton Renewable Energy is part of the Swinnerton family of companies, which Swinnerton is a 130-year-old construction company based in California. And now we are, you know, really extended across coast to coast with 14 different offices. The group that I lead is our renewable energy group, which focuses primarily on utility scale solar projects. And we've built plants in 28 states across the country. We also have almost 10 gigawatts of projects under operations and maintenance, which is under our Sol flag, which is a wholly owned company of Swinnerton and is a business unit that I manage as well. 
We started the group in 2008, mainly because of the downturn in the commercial construction markets. We were looking for, you know, opportunities in new markets. And so, you know, I took myself and a very small group of myself and started looking for some solar projects. You know, we found a couple of commercial opportunities and started to build the group over time started in the kind of commercial solar space, which was really all that was there in 2008-9. And then in 2010, we started really kind of the shift to utility scale solar. You know, while we've done some commercial work over the years, the vast majority of work we've done is in the solar space. I'm proud to say we're the largest solar contractor in the country now. I think we've just passed 800 full-time employees and probably three or 4,000 temporary employees employees, depending on, you know, the day and where we are and what states building solar. This year, we'll build about two and a half gigawatts worth of work, which is pretty amazing when you think about the days where, you know, if we got one megawatt project, we thought it was massive. And now it just rolls off like, you know, 2.5 gigawatts is no big deal. But it's absolutely a big deal. So it's pretty impressive. And, you know, we have amazing employees and business partners and phenomenal customers. We have a big repeat customer base. We're really known for, you know, our execution certainty and the ability to get projects done anywhere. And that's something we're really proud of. That's a great introduction, George, into Swinerton and congratulations and Solve as well. You know, what was amazing too, like when we talked about in the pre-interview was how much of the Swinerton business is now coming from, you know, the renewable energy side of it. And as you mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, that Swinerton construction business has been around for 120 years. And then really the renewable energy business has been around for 12 to 13 years. And for it to be a significant portion of revenue is pretty amazing. And that's an amazing accomplishment by you and your team. So. It's about 30, well, over 30%, moving to 40%. And, you know, I think that honestly, our biggest years are ahead of us. This is an industry where we've had highs and lows over the last 12 years. You know, a lot of them around, you know, run-ups in, you know, towards the end of the ITC. And so we had big project spikes in 16, you know, and then those dropped off in 17. And then we had pretty deep valleys in late 17 and 18 because of tariffs and policy shifts and a lot of concerns about renewables with the past administration. And so we've had those valleys and then we've kind of started crawling our way back up again. And, you know, I think we're at base camp. That's why I tell, you know, I always talk to people about the fact that, you know, I feel like we've been climbing Mount Everest for, you know, the last 10 years, but now we're at base camp and we're reloading and we're, you know, repositioning. And what got us here won't necessarily get us to the peak of Everest, but, you know, this is a great time to reload and retool as an industry so that we can begin the real march ahead. Yeah, I mean, exciting, as you mentioned, and just the beginning. And what's amazing to me is if you look at like how utility scale solar will grow in the U.S., over the next five to 10 years, especially, you know, as costs continue to go down, we're going to talk more about President Biden's infrastructure plan, but also states with new incentives and corporations with 100% renewable energy goals. I kind of feel like the sky's the limit, even at 2.5 gigawatts, like for Swinerton, that's going to be a small number in the near future, which is pretty amazing if you think about that. Yeah, no, I think there's, and you know, what's exciting to me is it's less about incentives and more about demand, just flat out demand. 
right? And it's demand from customers. It's demand from big corporations. It's really a sea change in shift, you know, away from fossil fuel. And so companies and individuals are making specific choices in, you know, demanding a cleaner energy grid. And um, at the same time, we're seeing demand start to rise again, right? Where we saw for years, we saw demand fairly flat because there were more energy efficiency that was driving down usage. But then, you know, everybody ended up with a cell phone and a bunch of chargers and other things that helped to kind of keep it flat. Now we see a demand curve that adds electric cars into the system. And, you know, now we have a huge demand curve at a time where we're decommissioning plants and you know coal plants and we're not building fossil fuel plants anymore. And now we have this demand curve going up. And so it's just a huge opportunity to continue to put renewables into the grid. And while prices will continue to fall to some degree, just because of efficiency and scale in areas and all things that will just make this business continue to optimize, you know, it's really not about falling prices. It's really about the demand curve and the really the want from corporate America and want from citizens to see that their energy supply is cleaner and cleaner. Yeah, that's a great point. The demand curve is definitely growing a lot. And I think that's a great perspective that I don't think a lot of people hear, but it's so true, especially as you mentioned, with consumers and companies requiring it and electrification, obviously of the car fleet or transportation, which is only beginning now. I think that's going to just really add such a significant amount of demand and exciting things, right? When you talk about the amount of just stored energy that will be in the system, right? When you're talking about what do you do with an electric car battery system that's connected to your house? And how do you start to really look at the ability to load transfer with a personal battery pack, essentially, that you're driving around? That is so true. And I think it's another great point, too. You mentioned that all the new additions that are coming into the grid is not going to be fossil fuel. It's going to be renewables. Yes, absolutely. And distributed. And also, like obviously, our infrastructure is very important as well. The more distributed generation that you come online. Yeah, no, that's an important part. And that's where we're talking about uh, the influx of storage, right? Where we can start putting storage distributed throughout our electrical grid system so that we're, you know, that we're able to offset a lot of the upgrades necessary by putting essentially generation at the load source, right? So by putting standalone storage out remotely and across the grid, it allows us to store energy right at the point of use and be able to use it when we need it. So just so much on the technology side that's coming, right? That's exciting. Definitely, for sure. And have you worked on standalone storage projects or solar plus storage? Both. We've done standalone storage, which was a plant placed right out of Peaker plant, which replaced an old jet engine, Peaker, Interesting. Uh, was replaced with you know battery storage for that reason. And then we're working on probably half a dozen projects within our design pipeline and starting to construct that have storage component as part of the solar plant. So I'm a believer that in 2022, likely every project we build, at least in the West and the Southwest, will have storage as part of it. There's so much energy in the system here now that we really need to add storage components to help extend the energy curve of solar into the evening hours. 
That makes sense. I mean, you're effectively talking about the duck curve. And I was going to ask, do you see any like sort of preferences on types of battery technology? Or, you know, obviously everyone's talking about battery costs going down dramatically in the next few years. I mean, the most of what we're seeing is that, you know, everybody's still focused on lithium batteries, and that's what we're putting in. And I think that the technology will just continue to advance and the prices will continue to come down. And in large part, because lithium batteries are used all over the supply chain, right? And all over the consumer products and everywhere. And so the demand to build the cheaper and cheaper lithium battery based on just overwhelming demand for them and utility projects are almost a beneficiary, a better battery for their cell phone, right? They want that last longer and they want to more miles out of a lithium battery in a car. And so all that technology, in this case, kind of trickles up into the large form, you know, utility scale batteries, really out of what is a necessity for a good consumer battery. So I think that we're going to see a lot of movement in pricing and technology, you know, as far as longer lasting, faster charging, all those things on the battery storage side. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a great point. And it'll be interesting to see how quickly that happens. And that's a great like analogy about talking about our personal use of batteries and the same sort of things that we want could be applied to basically commercial or utility scale use as well. So that's a pretty interesting perspective. You know, Tesla's building gigafactories, right, to supply batteries to their cars. That technology and that influence is ultimately driving down battery costs across the board. Yeah, for sure. And it'll be interesting to see how quickly these prices decrease. It was interesting, actually, you're mentioning that you basically started the business in 2008 during an economic recession to find you know, other revenue sources. And it was interesting to kind of hear over the 12 years, the different challenges, ups and downs. You talked about like the ITC and some other things. How was it like during the pandemic? And obviously, we're still in the pandemic, but I think there's a lot more certainty and clarity than before, like last year. Yeah. You know, like all of us, I think in March of last year, the massive amount of uncertainty and concern about what this was going to mean to our business. But I'm really proud of the work that we did in 2020. I think our teams rose to the occasion. They understood what the needs were. They understood what the risks were, understood how we were going to keep these large sites and these large, you know, employee bases where we had, you know, 500 people out in these remote sites and how we were going to keep those folks safe. And so we quickly implemented COVID protocol across all of our sites. It took some time to get everybody kind of acclimated to it early on. When you remember, right, everybody was was so much uncertainty and unknown. But we were able to keep all of our projects operating. Electrical projects were deemed essential right off the bat as infrastructure. And so projects got to continue. You know, we cut out all non-essential travel. So project teams could work with limited impact from traveling individuals. You know, we put in strict mask protocols and spacing protocols. And I tell people sometimes that we're the biggest owner of fleet of old yellow school buses in the country besides school districts, because we own these, you know, in a lot of job sites, we go out and buy school buses to drive crews around on site. We had to shutter all that because we couldn't put people in close proximity into large vehicles. And so we had to change our protocol of how to get 
folks out on the job sites and round job sites. But the teams did an amazing job. And we had our most successful year ever in 2020. And we were able to build the most capacity we've ever put in place. We were able to, you know, thankfully get through the health crisis without major issues and still successfully deliver projects. So I think in a strange way, we'll look back and think that it was one of our defining years of our company of how the team pulled together through what could have been an extremely big crisis and managed through it and continue to prosper. So I'm looking forward to getting everybody back. Our headquarters are in San Diego. So California still has significant amount of mandates, but we are seeing the hospitalization numbers go down and the overall numbers go down. We're seeing a large portion of our population has gotten the vaccine. So we're bringing people back as schools reopen and people can come back because their children are in school. You know, we're starting to see more kind of normalcy or maybe what is new normal exist in our offices. It's really brings a bit of mixed emotions around it, right? Because I really saw the best in our people and how they conquered adversity. And thankfully, our projects are thousands of acres outdoors. And if you're talking about putting 400 people across a couple thousand acres, you know, they're pretty much social distanced at that point. So um, (laughs) we had some things working in our favor for sure. Yeah, definitely. But still, it's pretty amazing accomplishment and to have your best year and then to, you know, adapt your business, the changes that you had to do to be able to be successful. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. You know, it's pretty amazing that you're doing O&M for 10 gigawatts worth of projects. Can you talk about like how you differentiate from other O&M companies? I know when you talked about Swinerton Renewable Energy, you talked about how you were unique as an EPC, but it would be also great to understand from an O&M perspective. You know, I think probably the biggest unique part of the business is that we really are one business. So with SRE and Solve together as an EPC and an O&M provider, we really work seamlessly together. So, you know, there is a kind of an information loop that works between the groups that allows our operations teams to feed our engineering and execution teams into, you know, how to affect the design and the installation so that we have better operations. And so the fact that we have them both under one umbrella and they're managed essentially with some crossover resources, it gives us a unique perspective on both businesses and much different than our other companies within the solar space that either specifically do EPC work or specifically do O&M work. And there's not that same level of crossover expertise. I think that it makes both groups stronger. You know, it allows us to really understand the design side really well, because what are we seeing on a long-term operations side? But it also gives our EPC group an appreciation to build a high-quality product because their team members are going to maintain it for the next five or 10 years. And so, you know, I think that that being one entity, it's unique in this space, but it is really, you know, an absolute differentiator in how we provide service. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's key as far as differentiating being in one umbrella with the EC and O&M. Sure. 
And I appreciate you explaining that. And that makes so much sense. Can you talk about like what innovations are you seeing in solar construction and O&M? Sure. Well, I think the interesting part is that, you know, this industry seems like it's been innovating and turning over year over year. It seems like every year we're putting in a new inverter or a new larger module. And so, you know, on a technology front, we're seeing a lot of things happen, right? And we're seeing the modules getting larger, which, you know, is cutting down our labor costs. We're obviously putting in a lot of bifacial modules. You know, everything we do is on a tracker platform, optimizing those tracker systems. You know, we continue to do those things. But I think that we also look at all the component parts as well. So all the balance of system. So we have unique partnership relationship with our manufacturing partner, Construction Innovations, who's been our partner from really day one and does all of the balance of system and kind of integrated components manufacturing. And so we work very closely with them to develop specific components for our projects. And those teams are constantly innovating to try to find ways Ways to minimize cable runs, minimize control apparatus, whether that's simple things like wire ties or racking systems for cabling, about how to, to minimize those things. So it's a constant innovation on that side. You know, it's interesting because you think about a system that has modules, racking, and inverters. Those three components have never changed from the day we started building a solar plant. And they're the same components that happen to be on my rooftop of my rooftop solar project. Same three components. And the fact that we've been able to continue to innovate and change and adapt those systems for 12 years to be as efficient as they are today And quite frankly, we know that there's still efficiency out there left. You know, innovation is still left in this industry. And it's really a fun part of my job is to watch what our teams come up with out of our kind of R&D group about how to just continue to drive more efficiency into the system. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of this podcast. Summit Ridge Energy is the leading owner and operator of community solar projects in the United States. The team has been a strong force within the U.S. commercial solar market for years and was instrumental in the creation of virtual power purchase agreements and associated financing structures. Summit Ridge Energy has leveraged this experience to launch Summit Ridge Capital, a dedicated funding platform that acquires pre-operational community solar and battery storage projects. SRE also works with landowners across the country to maximize the value of their acreage by offering predictable lease income to host their solar farms. From site identification and system design to takeout financing to construction management, Summit Ridge Energy is the most complete solution provider in the community solar space. Summit Ridge Energy was interviewed twice on the Solar Maverick podcast. Definitely check out those episodes. The latest one was episode 87, how Summit Ridge Energy became one of the largest owners of community solar project in the U.S. That was with Steve Rader, who's the CEO of the company, and Brian Dunn, who holds a dual role of COO, CFO for Summit Ridge Energy, and they're both founders of the company. And then there was an earlier interview, episode 26, a developer's perspective on the U.S. solar market with Steve Rader, who again is the CEO and founder of Summit Ridge Energy. If you want to learn more about Summit Ridge Energy, you could check them out at their website, which is srenergy.com or info at srenergy.com. We'll be also having in the notes of the podcast details about our sponsor. Thank you again to Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast. 
Yeah, that's pretty amazing to talk about that and all the innovation that's happening and you're able to save time and money and obviously lower the costs of the system for your clients and obviously being more efficient, as you mentioned, with trackers and bifacial panels and larger panels. So that's really interesting because those two things really are making a difference. Efficiencies of the solar system and the cost as well. It's really about how do we continue to work on energy density, right? These sites are getting more complicated. We need to deal with terrain changes and other things. It's not all building out in the big flat desert anymore. And so understanding how we can, you know, even build those projects in harder areas and more terrain challenged at a cost effective manner is kind of key to the continuing growth of the industry. Because it can't only grow in big flat deserts, right? That's just not the industry anymore. And that's not what the market demand is. Those are great points. And it's interesting because you mentioned this earlier, but really what you've been able to do as well on the customer acquisition side is to build scalability because you're having your repeat customers. And that must help as well as far as like being more efficient because you've worked with that customer before. You know what they're looking for as far as like contractual terms or even how to build that project to best maximize what they're looking for. Absolutely. That is, I think, one of the keys to our success is that we are a relationship business and we're a repeat customer business. We want to be the preferred service provider, right? And this is too difficult of a project to do in a transactional manner is that you have to build and you can't do transactional businesses at scale. You have to have great visibility into the pipelines of our customer base. So we understand and are building a business to support their businesses, right? So I'm already looking out into 2023, making projections of how much equipment do I need to buy? How many teams do I need to grow and spin out of my existing business? What is the geography that we need to put people and focus in? You know, we can only do that because we have such great repeat customer relationships. And, you know, they're really our business partners. We're building our businesses together. With that visibility, we're able to have the capacity that they need when they need it. If we had to wait and just kind of base ourselves on a transaction business, then we'd always be behind, right? I'd always, I'd be trying to buy equipment once I signed a contract. I'd be trying to hire people once I signed a contract. That's all too late. And so the visibility into our partners' businesses allows us to really plan to make us all successful. And that's what they want as much as what we want is that they want execution certainty. They want to know that, you know, we know what the plan is. We've developed it. We have the equipment. We have the resources so that we're all going to be successful when we get there. The biggest concern that the market has is how do we all scale to the type of scale that we need to be to be able to meet the demands of the customer base and the goals of the current administration, right? I mean, administration goals are so aggressive and so lofty. They're amazing. They're exciting, but they're going to stretch all of us to grow our businesses and become more efficient and do things in a just a kind of more holistic manner as far as the way the industry works together and partners. 
It's interesting how you're planning for the future based on transparency into the customer's pipeline. And I just think about, you mentioned that SRE built 2.5 gigawatts. Like I can't even imagine the procurement decisions that have to go into the panels, racking, inverters, and you obviously can't buy all these things like at one time at that sort of scale. So even like inventory and how you go about procuring it, the logistical challenges I can't even imagine. I often say that utility-scale solar project is somewhere between a military logistics operation and a manufacturing facility, right? I mean, those are somewhere in between is what really the business is. It's not really a construction company, right? It's a manufacturing logistics business. Because at any one time, you're shipping and trucking thousands of trucks in different directions to different parts of the country. And it's all well choreographed and pulled together and has outside influences that affect that every day, right? So whether it was COVID last year and still into this year, you know, COVID challenges of moving product across borders and having people and getting international product to now where we see there's big shipping delays in the ports and backup of shipping and product being delayed. So yeah, it's a difficult challenge and is something that the industry needs to continue to focus on because if we're continuing to grow this business 30 to 40% per year, the industry is just going to really hemorrhage in some areas around supply chain. And so continuing to stay focused and our procurement teams do yeoman efforts, right? To keep these projects on time and product delivered from all different manufacturers. It's a large part of the business for sure. Yeah, that's really interesting for you to explain that so that we all get a better idea about that. And it's interesting to me that you look at it as a logistics business, but it makes sense when you explain it. What trends are you seeing in solar in general that might be other technologies or other things that Yeah, you know, I think the most interesting thing that we're starting to talk about now, and we've almost moved past the storage discussion, which is interesting because we haven't deployed that much of it, but we all understand it and we all recognize it's coming. And, you know, it's just a matter of putting it in the ground now. Now, I think we're hearing more and more discussions around green hydrogen and being able to, you know, add electrolyzers to solar plants and, you know, where we have water sources and where we have high pressure gas systems. You know, California is a great example, but a lot of the West has high pressure gas running in a lot of areas. And so the ability to add clean hydrogen into those systems and really help to decarbonize the natural gas system, I think is something that is really interesting and is early stages. There's few companies that are looking at it and it's hard to make the economics of it work today. But I think it has huge opportunities because we can place these electrolyzers on sites, whether they were old built sites or new sites, to use the energy created by the solar field to create hydrogen that can then be stored, it can be put into the natural gas system and used. I think it's one of the most unique opportunities that we have when we really want to talk about how do you get to 100% carbon-free? I think absolutely hydrogen has to be part of the equation 
And the conversations are starting today, which tells me that, you know, based on how the trajectory of these things, you know, three or four years from now, maybe three years from now, we'll be deploying electrolyzers, which is just really an interesting and potentially game-changing part of the process. That's so interesting to hear about green hydrogen. I mean, I feel like it's getting a lot more popular, as you said, yeah. a lot of people are talking about it. And it's been, you know, it seems like Europe is more uh, further along in green hydrogen sure. than the U.S. is. And that's interesting to get your perspective. I think that there's a recognition in the Biden infrastructure packages that we have to do something with hydrogen, potentially a PTC or an ITC to help to move it along as well as an emerging technology. So I think those are some of the things that I'm excited about people talking out of the administration of ways to really infuse capital and investment and opportunity into kind of all forms of renewable. That's pretty exciting to hear about that. And I know you've been working because you're a board member of SIA with the Biden administration on President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. Can you talk more about like how this could impact the renewable energy industry in an extremely positive way? Sure. You know, I'm actually proud to say that this year I'm the chairman of the SIA board. So I was elected right before COVID. And so I went through a whole year and almost a year and a half without an in-person board meeting. So it's been a little bit interesting as the board chair this year, but exciting time to be the board chair and is obviously something I'm very proud of and excited to participate in. I may be the oldest tenured, I don't want to say I'm the oldest board member, but I'm the oldest tenured board member. And so I've been on the board now since 2010. And I've really seen the association grow and Abby's leadership has been phenomenal. And Sia's work with the Biden administration has been amazing. It's been almost tireless. The amount of meetings and discussions that we've had with administration members and you know staffers on the Hill about how best to structure the energy packages coming out of the Hill as part of the Biden kind of overarching infrastructure package. And, you know, I think there's some really good things that are happening. I think there's a real recognition to address labor issues in the bills to try to, you know, incentivize and use or create good paying jobs in this space. And so a lot of discussions around labor provisions that will allow for higher wages and the use of Davis-Bacon and prevailing wage requirements and things that exist in federal code today to better train and better support the workforce in renewable. So that's all really positive things. We're working with the administration and the staff on the Hill to make sure that we're careful in the fact that provisions that put in don't have unintended consequences and either drive up cost so dramatically or add so many process and red tape that it slows down development, right? Which is really counterproductive to what the administration wants, right? The administration wants mass deployment and they want, you know, mass job creation. And in doing that, we have to be careful that we don't make so many labor provisions that we prohibit the ability to deploy projects, which would 
inhibit the ability to hire people. So I think that's where the voice of industry really gets to come in and be heard from the administration that, you know, what are points that are well-intended, but have consequences around financing and other things because of uncertainty that regulations sometimes play on project development. But all in all, very positive feel from the administration and feel from Congress that really support this and understand that there's a huge job creation opportunity here if we do this right. And so it's exciting for me just to have spending a lot of time talking to lawmakers and administrations for three administrations now and just seeing how committed the current administration is and Biden's pledge for clean energy and decarbonization is real and they're taking real aggressive action towards it. So it is a unique time to be in the renewable energy industry. Definitely. And we appreciate all your hard work to help the industry with incentives and also obviously like practices to increase mass deployment, specifically like solar energy. Can you talk to maybe outside of like the labor incentives, what other incentives can be there for in the future for solar energy if there's, you know, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, incentives as much. I mean, obviously, the most successful policy program or policy that's been implemented in renewables is the investment tax credit, clearly. And so making sure that the investment tax credit is extended for a long period of time so that we don't have this constant battle of it's running up. So, you know, safe harbor, build projects, it's tapering down, then we start building projects again. So we have this big up and down kind of business process, all chasing the ITC. So establishing a long runway for the ITC so that investment capital and investment in companies can continue with certainty for a long period of time. That's kind of item number one on the list. And, you know, in that same kind of realm from a tax equity standpoint, we have been working hard with members in the House and Senate around refundability of tax credits. We recognize it looks like the economy is starting to work its way back and people are getting back to work. There's obviously a concern that there will be a deficiency in tax equity and deficiency in tax equity would stunt the growth of projects. And, you know, obviously we're working to try to see if we can get to a refundability, a refundable tax credit, at least for a period of time, a couple of, you know, a year or two to be able to make sure that we have tax credit available for the ITC. And then on the labor issues, those are more, you know, compliance related issues and making sure that we have some labor standards that are workable across all states that ensure that the renewable business is producing well-paying jobs that turn into careers. And you can, from President Biden's speech on Tuesday night, and pretty much all the messaging coming out of the Biden administration is clearly it's about good-paying jobs, right? It's about living wages and good-paying jobs and career building. And renewable has absolutely the opportunity to do that. Yeah, definitely. That's a great, really, synopsis of everything that's happening. And you're right that it's a huge infrastructure and jobs opportunity for the economy. George, this has been an amazing interview. I really appreciate your time today. If our listeners are interested in learning more about Swinnerton Renewable Energy or Solve, like what's the best way for them to learn about the company or to connect with you? 
our website is swinnertonrenewable.com. I would say start there. And we have a large social media presence and Twitter and Instagram. And our folks do a great job of getting information out. It's an absolute people first organization. So you'll see a lot about our things that we're doing. And it's a great place to understand the culture of the organization. I would say our website will give you the links to all those addresses because I probably will mess them up if I start trying to cite them. But look up Swinterton Renewable Energy on any of your social media platforms and you'll see a lot of cool stuff about a pretty cool company. Yeah, definitely. And this has been an amazing interview. And we'll have like all the links to Swinnerton on the the podcast. And George, thank you. Like, I really think you provided a lot of unique insights. And we really appreciate your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.